0: During this season, we've been exploring the parable of the prodigal son, or more accurately, as we will soon see, the parable of the two lost sons. We've been looking at the way this parable points to our hearts and our need for Christ, how it illuminates the hearts of God, the heart of God and his generous love for us, and how it helps us live with steadfast hope in the middle space of waiting for Christ to return. In week one of this series, Mike looked at the younger son's wandering heart, It's the part of the story where the younger son utterly rejected his father, wished him dead, took off to a distant country, and squandered everything that he had. In week two, Alistair looked at the, the, the son's surrendered heart and his decision in the wake of losing everything to return home to the father. And last week, Alistair looked at the graciousness and the extravagance of the father's heart in welcoming the younger son home again. I have to admit, it is really, really hard to follow up the celebration of last week. A lot of me wishes the story just ended there because it's just that good. It's the awe-inspiring and heart-awakening kind of ending that we love to love. It's a passage of scripture we can never tire of hearing or reading or being completely blown away by. If you weren't here last week, you should definitely go back and listen to the podcast online and immerse yourself in the beauty of verses 20 through 24. But the story isn't over. Even after the stunning and astounding reception of the father and his reconciliation with the younger son, the plot isn't finished. Jesus has more to say to us. We're only three quarters of the way into a basketball game, and even if we played the best quarter of our careers in the third quarter, we still have one more quarter to play. And so in a crashing back to reality sort of plot twist, we have to keep reading. In many ways, we still haven't even reached the punchline of what Jesus is trying to say in this parable. But as we dive into the ending, there's two things we need to keep in mind. The first is the specific audience that Jesus is addressing through this narrative. He's speaking to the Pharisees, to the religious elites of his day. He's speaking directly to the hearts of his accusers and those skepticals to the kingdom of God and its inclusion of the lost, the broken, and the sinful. And secondly, it's really important to remember the foundation that's been established in the first three weeks. There's a reason that Jesus opened with the redemptive narrative of the younger brother, and there's a reason that we chose to root ourselves in that portion of the parable for the majority of this series. We simply cannot focus enough on the foundation of grace we see in the Father and the reach of love that we encounter in his heart. It's a love that far surpasses anything that we can imagine or will ever be able to fully articulate. So with that in mind, we keep going. And we meet the older son. In doing so, we're going to look at three things this morning the older son's distance, his jealousy, and the father's invitation. Open your Bibles with me to Luke 15, verses 25 to 32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he said to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, he comes home and you killed the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The language in this passage is crucial. Look at verses 25 to 28. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. Take note of verse 25 here. The father has already welcomed the younger son home again. The party has already started. And verse 23 tells us that the father had invited the entire village. Yet the older brother is completely in the dark and unaware of what's happening. This is huge. This isn't like missing the invitation to an event and seeing pictures of it online later and wondering why you weren't invited. In this cultural context, it's absolutely crazy that the older brother wouldn't have heard about the party. And it's even crazier and more offensive that he wasn't there. In fact, the expected cultural practice would have been that the older son would have taken the lead in reconciling the father and the younger brother. That's definitely not what's happening here. And while we aren't told why the older brother is isolated from the community, we definitely know that he is we can quickly spot evidence of a broken relationship between both the father and the older son and a dysfunctional relationship between the two brothers. The older son fails to greet his father with the correct title of respect. This doesn't necessarily phase us in our casual age, but this would have been a massive insult in this cultural context. The servant eagerly tells the older brother that your brother has come home, yet the older brother refuses to acknowledge his relationship with his younger brother and refers to him as this son of yours when speaking to his father. The older son's refusal to enter the party was the cultural equivalent of his younger brother asking for his inheritance early. Both acts communicated to the father and to the community around them that they wished their father dead. In many ways, the heart of the older son is the same as the heart of the younger son. Even though the older son may have stayed geographically close to his father, that doesn't necessarily correlate into a healthy, loving relationship. And while the older son may have a resume of faithful work and no obvious stints of rebellion, his response to his brother and to his father clearly exposed the pride in his heart. It also shows us that he had a misunderstanding of what it meant to love and to be loved. Jesus is setting up a comparison here between the older and the younger sons. He's systematically exposing the false dichotomy that exists in the minds of the Pharisees between notions of morality and rebellion. The younger son represents the sinners. The audience listening would have already labeled him as one of the rebellious lost causes and a member of the sinful ranks of the tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. His selfish and offensive treatment of his father and his hedonistic wanderlust only serve to re-emphasize their understandings of what it meant to be sinful. But Jesus proceeds to systematically dismantle the paradigm with the introduction of the older brother. He doesn't perpetuate a comparison between the sinful and the righteous. This parable is in no way a comparison between a faithful older brother versus a rebellious little brother. Jesus sets up the parable in such a way as to expose the equally desperate need of both the older son and the younger son. He's redefining sin, and he's redefining need. The Pharisees lived by a clear cut and shallow definition of sin. To them, and to many of us, sin was simply seen as a failure to keep God's rules. Sin was a violation of a code of conduct. But if we believe that and when we believe that, we reduce a relationship with God to a set of moral rules and we'll find our value and our worth in our ability to live according to those rules. When we do well, our pride will become our God. When we fail, we'll be crippled by insecurity. But whether failing or succeeding, we'll have missed the main point of what God wants to offer us in the gospel. However, before we go any further, we need to make sure that we don't try to build the same narrow classifications that the Pharisees built. We tend to give the Pharisees an incredibly bad rap. We label them as the jaded religious bigots. We see them as the rigid followers of an archaic religious practice that had no space for grace or freedom. But in many ways, they were just the devout followers trying to uphold the law as they understood it. If we're honest, we feel about them the way that many in our culture feel about anyone who claims God, or claims faith in God and affirms a religious identity. In other words, we look to the Pharisees with the same skepticism and criticism that many outside the church look at those of us inside the church. The older brother types are the reason that so many people love the idea of Jesus, yet claim to hate religion and want nothing to do with the church. Let's be real, in our culture that abides by individual expression and the ability to do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be, the grace extended to the younger brother is absolutely incredible. But it's also a little bit more comfortable to us. Many of us, whether we follow Jesus or not, are drawn to Jesus who meets sinners where they're at. We love the examples of mercy that we find in the way he loves the outcasts but we're increasingly skeptical about religion and the demands of religious practice. And so, in many ways, our culture still builds the same kind of dichotomous classification we see here. We put religion and moralism on one side and pluralistic secularism on the other. We label one side the problem and the other side the solution and we find ourselves in the crossfires of a culture war in between. However, Jesus isn't advocating for a movement from one side of radical self-expression to the side of the religiously devout. He's deconstructing the paradigm on both sides. What he's communicating here is that whether or not you are a saint, so to speak, or living a good life, or if you're a sinner and governed by habits of hedonism and selfishness, you are equally bankrupt before God. He's presenting a counter-cultural reality that is something else entirely. Let's look again at the older brother's response. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home and you've killed the fattened calf for him. Again, the older brother's response is telling. His anger about the celebration clearly exposes his notions of moral superiority. He echoed the Pharisee's own line, I never disobeyed a single command of yours. Instead of responding to the goodness of his little brother coming home, the older brother focuses on a comparison of action and reward. He wants equality and fairness, but when he encounters the extravagance of grace, the true posture of his heart is revealed. This makes sense to us too. We want fair treatment. We naturally want what is due to us, and we want to be recorded according to the quality and the duration of our work. But this isn't necessarily how the kingdom works. In middle school and high school, I remember absolutely hating the day that report cards came home. I have three older brothers and the one that's closest to me in age is only one year apart, was only one year apart from me growing up. Now, my brother is brilliant and creative, but he did not do well in the traditional structures of academia. His grades were in no way a reflection of his potential, but they were, well, they weren't very good. I, however, thrived in school. I worked really hard and I jumped through all of the necessary academic hoops, and my grades reflected this effort. I expected and demanded more of myself than either my parents or my teachers did, so neither of them had to work very hard at getting me to work, to focus or to work, do well. So every term when our grades would come out, I'd show mine to my parents, be met with a good job, Alita, keep up the great work, and I'd quickly escape to my room to avoid the conversation they would proceed to have with my brother. However, there are a few years where we they must have been increasingly frustrated with his lack of being receptive to conversations about not living up to his potential. So they decided to go the route of positive reinforcement. What this meant is that my dad developed a system where my brother would be given money or donuts or taken out to lunch if his marks improved. And for a few semesters, it seemed to help. Our grades would come out. I would get my consistent, good job Alita, keep up the good work. And my brother got taken out for pizza or given some spending money. It drove me crazy. Even with the improvement, his improvements, his grades were still far below mine and I had never gotten more than a good job. My pride got in the way of my wanting to celebrate with my brother's improvements. So I did what any rational teenager would do. I proceeded to point out the inconsistency to my parents. Their response was something about them being really proud of me and thankful that they didn't need to give me any extra motivation. And then they invited me to go out to lunch with them and my brother to celebrate my brother's improved grades. (laughs) What were they thinking? Invite me to go to lunch with him? I was the one with the perfect marks. And then I started thinking, if he got pizza for mediocre grades, certainly I could raise the stakes of it. So I demanded an entire week of pizza. Actually, no, I don't even remember how I responded to their invitation, but I'm pretty sure I just defaulted back to my I do well in school and my brother doesn't, classification that boosted my ego, and I went on with business as usual. It's a minor example, but the bottom line is this. We have a natural tendency to compare and to see inconsistencies in the treatment that is towards us. We naturally want to defend our own position But when we diminish the generosity of God to an equation of fairness, we miss its beauty. And I think that's what's happening here with the older brother and the Pharisees. They're missing the forest of God's extravagant love for the trees of moral conduct. In doing so, there's two things I think we need to pay close attention to. The first is the older brother's actions and the second is his attitude. Fundamentally, what the older brother failed to understand when he compared his track record of work was that the father didn't want a servant. He wanted a son. The older brother's linear line of logic focused on what he and his brother had done or hadn't done. But the father's response suggests that the older son's true misunderstanding was one of identity, not activity. So when the father tells the older son that you are always with me and everything that I have is yours, he's reaffirming the older son's sonship. He's reaffirming the love that has always been his, the presence he has always had access to and the inheritance he has never lost. The father essentially tells the son that there is nothing that he needs to do to have access to the father's love and to his inheritance. He has full access to the Father and all that the Father owns simply because he is a beloved son. But the son can't see past the things he still thinks he needs to do for his father. He doesn't see himself as a son at all. He says, all these years, I have been slaving for you. For many of us, especially those of us who have grown up in or spent a significant portion of our lives in or around the church, We're really familiar with the structures and the demands of religious practice. We build frameworks of religious discipline. We devote significant time to prayer and reading and studying scripture and interpreting it as correctly as we can. We aim to do good things, to care for the poor, to live generously and to live good lives. And maybe you didn't grow up in the church at all and you're still skeptical to this whole religion thing but you've built a dichotomy in your mind and your lifestyle of what it means to be good. You likely affirm a humanitarian ethic and caring for the environment and living in peace and harmony with other ideas and ethnicities. Those are really, really good things. But the practices, disciplines, and religion are not the problem here, nor is the pursuit of doing good things. In fact, these things have great value and are incredibly beneficial. Likewise, though, the older brother's actions of staying and working weren't the problem itself. The problem was that the older brother saw those actions as some sort of validation for his worth and the way by which he could somehow earn his father's inheritance. Ironically, these same actions that caused him to see see distance between himself and his father. He saw himself as a slave. So the very things he does that makes him think he is worthy also give birth to an unhealthy picture of his father, a cruel, unrewarding taskmaster. The problem here is that when religious activity in the pursuit of good is fueled by anything less than a deep and passionate encounter with God and an understanding of his love. Because being good and doing good simply is not good enough. It doesn't matter if you're as humanitarian-minded as Angelina Jolie or if you're as corrupt as a money-swindling Wall Street executive, if you're as seemingly righteous as a priest or as lost and broken as a drug addict. Before the Father, we all encounter grace we so desperately need and love we cannot earn. We encounter a God who wants to make make us his sons and his daughters, not because of anything that we've done for him, but because of everything that he has done for us through Christ. Yet, because the older son is still caught in the confines of a works-based religious framework, his action-focused misunderstanding of his identity breeds a toxic attitude of jealousy that blinds him. He's blind to really beautiful things. He can't see the good things happening around him in the life of his little brother. In clinging to his notions of moral superiority, he's showing that he doesn't understand the love of the father at all. And he doesn't understand how much he, too, needs grace. His pride and jealousy and selfishness stand between him and the extravagance we find in the father's response. The older brother is unwilling to acknowledge or celebrate what is truly good. Instead of seeing improvement, he focuses on where his younger brother failed. Instead of celebrating him coming home, he's still stuck on the fact that he ran away. The contrast between the stunning response of the father and the ugliness of the older brother's heart is powerful. The world of the kingdom of God is bursting with new life and color, but the older brother chooses to remain stuck in the confines of a black and white conception of justice. He's stuck in an understanding of fairness that is one-dimensional and lifeless. He chooses grumbling instead of celebration. He opts for muttering in the background that surely things can't be that easy, that God has no right to be that generous, or the people who've done nothing wrong are being overlooked here. As I said before, to him, the father who he thought should have rewarded him is seen as unjust because he doesn't reward him the way that he thinks he deserved. I hear this in our culture all the time. People have said, if God isn't willing to recognize and accept me for the good that I have done in my life, then why would I want anything to do with him? This is the heart of the older brother. Jesus is unequivocally comparing the attitude of the older brother to the actions of the Pharisees. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it like this. They couldn't see the sunlight sparkling through the fresh spring flowers of God's love. Here were all these people being changed, being healed, having their lives transformed physically, emotionally, morally, and spiritually. And the grumblers could only see litter, the human garbage that they normally despised and avoided. Because where resurrection is occurring, where new life is bursting all around, it is not only appropriate, it is necessary to celebrate. To do anything less than to celebrate is to ignore the places that God has been at work. It's to look at the garbage and to refuse to smell the flowers. But yet again, the father's response is simply astounding. The father meets the older son where he's at, He comes away from the party to meet with the son, and he extends grace to him. Look at verses 31 through 32 at the end of the parable. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father reminds his son of how wonderful his love is. And he invites him to not only watch the extravagant welcome that he extended to the younger son, but to accept it and experience it himself. In ending with the powerful plea that it was fitting to celebrate because your brother was dead and lost, but now is alive and found, he's essentially casting vision for the beauty of the kingdom of God, a place where dead things come to life and people who are held captive are set free. He's offering grace, deep and incomprehensible grace, and open arms to the celebration of all that God is doing and will continue to do. The same generous and extravagant welcome of the father that the father extended to the younger son is available to the older son. And the same generous and extravagant love that welcomed the outcasts and the marginalized at the table of Jesus is available to the religiously devout. To Jesus, the kingdom knows no bounds, and it turns all false notions of worth and worthiness on their head. The paradigm between the moralistic and the religious versus the rebellious wanderers is reconciled in the person and work of Jesus. The something else entirely that Jesus advocates is the generous and readily available love of God that meets saves and transforms sinners and saints alike because the joy and mystery and extravagance of the gospel is always more than the confines of religious moralism this parable ends on a cliffhanger we're left wondering what comes next in the story will the older son come inside will the two sons be reconciled how will the younger brother behave from now from now on it's, it's like the frustrating end to a movie when it fades to black before you find out how the plot ends. But in finishing the story like this, Jesus leaves the Pharisees with a powerful plea to enter into the kingdom of God. He wants them to address their resistant and reluctant hearts. But we don't know how they will choose to respond. It's hard to read. I want to see the older brother enter the banquet so we can celebrate the return of both sons I want to reach into the story and shake the shoulders of the Pharisees and tell them everything I can to convince them that the love of Jesus and the power of the gospel is so much better than the confines you've put around it. But they're left with a choice. The Father graciously extends an invitation. He doesn't give a command. And likewise, we too encounter a choice. I say that I want to shake the Pharisees and tell them how much better knowing Jesus is and what they've thought of him. But I quickly realize that I need that truth to shake up my own heart and my own mind first. Because whether you follow Jesus for a long time, if you're a new believer or you don't associate with Christianity at all, the reality is that we all have resistant hearts when it comes to God. And we need the graciousness of the Father more than we will ever No. We also need to know that the grace that the Father offers to us is vastly better and more beautiful than we will ever be able to imagine or understand. The Father extends a generous invitation to the feast. Despite his failings and his mess-ups, the younger son chose to enter in, but seemingly stuck in his morality and his believed lack of need for the father, we don't know how the older brother will respond. For us, as we wrap up the season of Advent, we too come face to face with the invitation of Christ. We look to the generosity of God when he sent Christ on our behalf. We look to the story of God coming in human flesh and celebrate the moment when all of creation rejoiced because the Messiah had finally come and we're invited to respond with that, to that generosity with gratitude and celebration. We also encounter an invitation to taste and see that God is good. And This is an invitation that invites us not only to watch his love and his reconciliation unfold in the lives of people around us, but to experience it deeply and personally for ourselves. So this parable should cause all of us Christian or not, morally upright or morally bankrupt, to consider how you will respond? Will you come in and celebrate God's grace? Will you lay everything aside and be received as one of God's children, not for anything you have done or haven't done, but because God has graciously given us his son so that we might be restored to him? The choice is yours. How will you respond?